0: Our busy old day on RTE Radio 1 and plenty to catch up on. This is Playback Daily, I'm Carol Morin and here's what you might have missed.
1: Ireland is like my my second home and it's like a green paradise with warm people. I remember my first visit, I was shocked. Uh, I saw people smiling, you know, talking to each other. And at those times in Belarus, it was a dull
2: atmosphere. In the book, I speak about how I had two names Georgie. Yeah. Yes. My mum called me Georgie, and my dad called me Georgina. And I was so loved. I was almost loved too much. They both wanted me all
3: the time. You put it in the bag. Yeah. Okay, raw. Yeah. It's in the bag. You've got a pot of boiling water, and you're going to boil it all in the bag. I don't know a single food that has ever been improved by boiling it in a bag.
0: And we'll start on Morning Ireland. The Belarusian politician and opposition leader Svetlana Sikhanowska was talking to Gavin Jennings about the current situation in Belarus being awarded a Peace Prize in Tipperary and her relationship with
4: Ireland. Belarusian politician and opposition leader Svetlana Chutanesca is in Tipperary today where she will be given the Tipperary International Peace Award. The awards committee said she has been given the accolade as a statement of support for the rights to freedom of speech, freedom of association and freedom of assembly in Belarus, run for almost 30 years by Alexander Lukashenko, Europe's last dictatorship. She ran in the 2020 Belarusian presidential election after her husband was arrested and imprisoned, when he announced his intention to contest the election. She spent much of her time in North Tipperary as a child and joins us from there now. Svetlana, good morning and congratulations on the award. And my apologies at not being able to pronounce uh, your second name, despite several attempts uh, to practice just before you came on air. Um, What does receiving the Tipperary International Peace Award mean to you?
1: Uh, Good morning, dear Irish people. Uh, You know, I came to receive the Tepi Rapids Award, but this award is not for me. It's to all Belarusian people who fearlessly and peacefully fight for freedom and democracy. This award also goes to our political prisoners who, even being in prison, don't give up. I do believe that this award will attract attention to Belarus because the fight for freedom is a global one.
4: Can you remind us about your connections with Ireland?
1: Uh, you know, I visited Ireland several times when I was child, then I was student, and of course, uh, Ireland is like my my second home, and it's like a green paradise with warm people. I remember my first visit. I was shocked. Uh, I saw people smiling, you know, talking to each other. And at those times in Belarus, it was dull atmosphere. People were just surviving because of uh, poor economic situation. And I just discovered a new world for me. You know, for years, I uh, kept connection with the family that hosted me. Um, Uh, back then and uh, yesterday I, uh, the Dean's family visited me in Tipperary you know just it was like uh, meeting with my family actually
4: Yes, you you had dinner with them last night I, I gather, how special was that for you?
1: Oh, it was extremely special. You know, I'm communicating with Henry Dean uh, time to time, you know, on uh, through Internet. But when you hug the person who opened you uh, like another world uh, many years ago, uh, just has spe- special meaning for me. But of course, it's not only, you know, one person. You know, the movement appeared in Ireland that invited Jerusalem and Ukrainian children who suffered from uh, Chernobyl disaster. And it was a huge opportunity for us to, uh, you know, to improve our health uh, conditions, to uh, see how other people live and to see how uh, European country differs uh, from country we lived in.
4: Tell me, how is your husband?
1: Actually, I would like to tell you good news, but actually, you know, he uh, almost three years uh, kept in solitary cell uh, in the prison and for a month already i don't have any news from him because there is such a strategy of the regime to uh, deprive lawyers who defend political prisoners of licenses and our political prisoners don't uh are not uh, uh, you know don't have communication with lawyers with their families uh, but uh, you know people who sacrificed they Uh, freedom and their lives actually for uh, democratic Belarus they are not giving up and even from jail they send us uh, uh, like rays of courage and uh, they are fearless, Uh, they know that we are defending them, that we are fighting for them and that's why I call Ireland and all the countries not to overlook Belarus not to overlook humanitarian catastrophe in our country and to support us as much as you can.
4: You're living in Lithuania now are you able to go to Belarus at all?
1: Oh of course not no i, I can't physically, but uh I will be detained immediately. You know that I got uh, fifteen years of jail uh, in absentia, and uh, of course uh considers me like you know, his personal enemy. Uh, So that's why you can't do a lot uh, inside Belarus because repressions are awful. About 20 people are being detained every day in our country. So uh, I will not be able to do anything from inside, from jail. So that's why I have to work from uh, exile, you know, to be the voice of the Russian people, to unite people and to lead our fight for democratic changes.
4: The focus that had been on your country shifted once Russia invaded Ukraine. In your view, has the war enabled Lukashenko to impose even tougher restrictions?
1: Uh, Actually, when the war has started, a lot has changed for Belarusian people as well. Uh, Majority of Belarusians said uh, they know to the war, they have anti-war position. They are helping Ukrainians as much as uh, they can. But uh, all those who are opposing the war uh, became enemies of the regime as well. Uh, for example, a guy who donated 20 euros to Ukrainian army was imprisoned for tw- for five years. A girl who was singing a Ukrainian song two years in jail. Uh, so uh, uh, people, and at that moment when the war started, we. Realize that we are not the same as Russia, as Russians, because Russian people, you know, they are supporting uh, this war, they are against uh, uh, Ukrainians, but uh, our nations, Ukrainian and uh, Belarusian, are very close, and we don't want to lose this relationship. That's why, when the war has started, uh, Belarusian partisan movement uh, appeared, and uh, Belarusian partisans uh, disrupted railways to slow down Russian. Equipment uh, that was going through our country to Ukraine, Belarusian partisans blowed up a very expensive surveillance uh, airplane uh, in Belarusian airport. Uh, Also, Belarusian military volunteers are fighting in Ukraine, uh, shoulder to shoulder with Ukrainians. Our people who became refugees for uh, political persecution, they're helping Ukrainian refugees because we understand what it means to live like your life behind, grabbing your child and, and uh, you know, leaving the country you love. So uh, I uh, know that the fate of Belarus and Ukraine are intertwined. Without free Ukraine, there might not be free Belarus, but also vice versa. Without free Belarus, there will be no safety in the whole region.
4: In your view, does the West need to impose the same level of sanctions against Belarus as it did against Russia?
1: Belarusian regime fully supports uh, the war and uh, support Putin, and Putin supports Lukashenko, and of course, uh, all the possible pressure, uh, economic pressure, political pressure, ha- has to be imposed on both uh, dictators. And uh, now we see that uh, Lukashenko and Putin they circumvent sanctions uh, through uh, Belarus and Russia, so that's why the sanctions should be synchronized, uh, of course
4: to avoid impunity. Has Putin been quietly increasing his control and influence over Belarus? Do you think it could be next on his list to annex?
1: No, we already see the signs of creeping occupation of Belarus. Uh, We feel the presence of uh, Russian military, uh, of of Russians in military sphere and economic sphere, media, cultural sphere, and uh, of course, uh, I suppose that Kremlin doesn't see uh, Belarus as separate. Uh, state. And we realize that our independence is at stake at the moment. Lukashenko piece by piece selling our uh, sovereignty to Russia, because Russia supporting him politically and economically. And of course, the world should alarm about the situation. And the possible deployment of nuclear weapon is a very certain sign, because even after changes, it will be so difficult to get rid of nuclear weapon from our territory. It's it could have very um, bad consequences, you know, for our country. And so that's why I'm waiting from uh, democratic, powerful countries, you know, strong uh, voice about deployment and uh, this deployment must be prevented.
0: Svetlana Ciskanouska talking to Gavin Jennings in the morning. And on the Ray Darcy show in the afternoon, social media personality and health and wellness coach Georgie Crawford was talking about her book, Glow.
5: Now, Georgie Crawford uh, first spoke to us in 2018. Uh, She'd been diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 32. Uh, And since that diagnosis, Georgie has transformed her approach to life. Um, she's a new person she's gone from strength to strength with uh, the Good Glow podcast having been downloaded over 9 million times you heard me correctly 9 million and this year Georgie published her first book Glow 5 Steps to Create the Life You Dream About and she's here in studio uh, wearing a pink jumpsuit which matches the cover <laughs> of her book <laughs> but it is remarkable I, like I wouldn't normally remark on what people are wearing but it is it goes perfectly with the book I'm glad you noticed that's not a coincidence is it's it? it's not no no, no. <laughs> How are you? I'm really good. How yeah. are you? Yeah, is this, this isn't your first. Is this your first book? It is. Yeah. Wow. It That's is. That's exciting, isn't it?
2: It has been a dream come true to write it. I took about eight months off and just went into this new world of uh, a little bubble just with myself. And I took myself off every day, and I just loved every second yeah. of it.
5: Did you aspire to write when you were a child? Yes, right. I
2: did. I, I I've always. I've always written letters, you know, to friends, um, family members. I've always written little poems and things. So it really, it was on my bucket list. So to have the, you know, the privilege to sit down and write like that was truly amazing.
5: So the last six years, that's what we get in the book really, isn't it? and, And before that, but mainly the last six years, because in 2017, your world was turned upside down.
2: Yeah. So 2017, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I was 32. I just had P.M. my little girl. So really, I, I, you know, I'd been, it gave me a chance, you know, when I was diagnosed with cancer to stop. And my life was infused with time all of a sudden because right. I'd never had time in my life.
5: Just remind people about your busy life before that, because you were a, you're a sort of a radio journalist, Mm. Uh, so you'd worked with Spin and ninety eight FM, and you were going here, there, and everywhere, and you were working every hour that God sent you.
2: Yeah, I always wanted to do the breakfast shift because I felt like I could fit more stuff into my day. aha uh-huh. um, And before that, I worked in a restaurant. I was always juggling things, you know. But when I
5: but what, bring us back into that uh, younger um, Georgie's head, and what was the what was the thinking? You know, what what sort of... Were you thinking, if I work hard, I will succeed? And when I succeed, what did success look like for you then?
2: Yeah, so I suppose I was... I was. It was like I was waiting to start living and I was always striving for more in my life. The promotion, uh, the other radio station, the bigger job. What more can I give to this to take me higher? And in the process, I was suffering myself. I was definitely going around and around in circles for years and I sacrificed my own health and happiness because I told myself when I get this job or when uh, I get to the next level, then I will be happy uh-huh. then I can focus on myself that's the
5: same with all of us isn't it
2: well that's the thing Like I, if it's not a
5: job it's a car or a house or a holiday or a partner or a cat or a dog or whatever but it's all about when we that'll make us complete and we will be happy
2: I was always on to the next thing never stopping right. never reflecting I mean I held my I held my little girl in, in my arms in Hollis Street Hospital and I remember looking down she was a couple of hours old and wondering when will I have my next baby Right You know and that was just the way I lived my life just so frantically all the time
5: uh, Is Do you you reckon that's sort of uh, a genetic thing or is it as a result of your upbringing that something happened to you that you wanted to be that way?
2: I think I was always running from myself. So I never wanted to stop because I was afraid of what that might bring up. So I was keeping myself in this cycle of busyness and uh, I listened to like Tony Robbins and, you know, Oprah Winfrey and they say, we get so bogged down in the small things because we don't want to think about the big things. And I think there was a lot of trauma in my life that I didn't want to think about too much.
5: Well, your parents separated when you were young. What age were you? I was two. Ah, right. Okay. Now, you wouldn't have any memory of that.
2: No, and I had a very happy, wonderful childhood, but it was separate. But
5: but they tell us now, you know, the people who know that even if we've no memory doesn't mean we can't have suffered trauma. Mm. Because there would have been obviously, I don't know, an atmosphere in the house before the breakup, maybe.
2: Maybe. um, I I did have an amazing childhood, but I think, you know, especially for for kids. and, And it was important for me to put this in the book because even on my way in this morning I got a message from a lady and in the book I speak about how I had two names Georgie Mm, Yes, my mum called me Georgie and my dad called me Georgina and I was so loved I was almost loved too much they both wanted me all the time and I got a message from a lady uh, about half an hour ago who said her child also has two names and is from um, a broken home and she texted her today and said I've never asked you how do you feel about having two names and her 15 year old wrote back and said mum I've been too afraid to say that I hate having two names so that's
0: why it was important for me to put that stuff in. Georgie Crawford on the Ray Darcy show And on Morning Ireland, Laura Trevelyan an ancestor of Charles Edward Trevelyan, the man immortalised in the Fields of Athenry song for his role during the famine
6: For you stole Trevelyan's con. So be young, mighty, the more
7: The Fields of Athenry, with its reference to Trevelyan's corn, has helped to make the name of Charles Trevelyan synonymous with British policy during the Great Famine here. But should his descendants be asked to pay reparations for the consequences of his actions? That's the question being posed by his great-great-great-granddaughter, Laura Trevelyan. Here she is talking to Mark Simpson on Radio Ulster about her infamous ancestor and his legacy.
8: As Tony Blair said it in 1997, the Britain's Prime Minister at the time. Those who governed in London at the time of the Irish famine failed their people by standing by while a crop failure turned into a massive human tragedy.
9: Including your great-great-great-grandfather.
8: Well, he was the Treasury official in charge of famine relief. So he is an absolutely central character in this. And as I reflected in my book back in 2006, you know, he's a, he's a providentialist. He's a laissez-faire economist. He thinks that private charity in Ireland should be leaping to the rescue. He appears to think... I mean, it's kind of hard to interpret his writings in some ways because they're so Victorian and convoluted and open to interpretation in some ways. But he says, you know, he both says that people cannot, under any circumstances, be allowed to starve, and they do starve. So he's failed by his own point. And he also seems to suggest that in some ways... This is the divine punishment of God for, for a one-crop economy. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's very, very hard to defend any of it.
7: Laura is a former BBC journalist who recently gave up that role to concentrate on campaigning for reparative justice. It comes after members of her family agreed to donate more than £100,000 to the Caribbean island of Grenada to compensate for their ancestors' historic role in the slave trade. She was asked if the same approach should apply to Ireland. To
8: the best of my knowledge, there isn't an intergovernmental request from the Irish government, British, for reparations to be paid for the famine because of the action of officials like Sir Charles. So I guess the distinction I would make is that in the Caribbean, the my ancestors, Trevelyan ancestors, were acting for private profit, enslaving people, getting profits from the sugarcane plantations, whereas Sir Charles was acting as an official of the British government, and the British government did in 1997 acknowledge his failures and the failures of others as part of a wider diplomatic jigsaw puzzle leading up to the Good Friday Agreement.
0: Then later BBC journalist Mark Simpson was talking to Claire Byrne.
8: So as I said there the
10: Trevelyan family they've agreed to make that payment to Grenada for their role in the slave trade so how likely is it that this would be replicated in the case of the Great Famine here?
9: I think very unlikely though we haven't heard back from the Irish government I did this interview with Laura Trevelyan at the weekend and we put a call in to the Taoiseach's office on Sunday now of course yesterday being May Day they haven't had an awful lot of time to come back to us but my impression is that in terms of Anglo-Irish relations this was dealt with more than 20 years ago by the then Prime Minister Tony Blair when he apologized for the Irish famine I personally have never heard much being mentioned.
10: All right, well, I want to play a really interesting clip from that interview you did, Mark, because Laura Trevelyan worked as a reporter in Northern Ireland during the Good Friday Agreement. And she told you, didn't she, how her name and her ancestry was received by principals who were involved in those negotiations 25 years ago,
8: including Martin McGuinness. When I was a BBC reporter covering the Good Friday Agreement... I tripped over my own history there. I well remember Martin McGuinness saying to me, gosh, is this a coincidence that the British have sent a Trevelyan for the BBC, a state institution, to cover these negotiations? And I assured him that it was a coincidence, but he didn't think that it was at all. And that was when I tripped up against Sir Charles Edward Trevelyan and I remember so clearly being in Cross McGlenn in South Armagh and speaking to a member of Republican Sinn Féin, who looked at me in horror and said, how can you be driving around South Armagh with the blood of the Irish on your hands? And to my embarrassment, I didn't even really understand what either of them were talking about, particularly. So then when I got back, you know, to Britain, I began to read up on Sir Charles. So yes, I did know that it would Emerge in all of this. Uh, And by the way, the Trevelyan family in the 19th century, like ruling class families of that day, were at the forefront of empire and colonialism, not just in Ireland and in the Caribbean, but in India too. Uh, So there is so much there to be confronted. But yes, I I did know that this would come up.
10: Mm -hmm. It's extraordinary, isn't it, that Martin McGuinness would say that to her and that she seemed, Mark, not to know that much about the history of Trevelyan in Ireland, despite the fact that she was working here as a reporter?
9: Yeah, she told another story as well. Parking her car in Dublin and somebody helped her outside the Department for Foreign Affairs in the city centre... And somebody overheard her being greeted by an official at the department as Laura Trevelyan. And they started singing the Fields of Athenry to her in the middle of Dublin. She then went into the department. I'm not sure who the, the Foreign Affairs Minister at the time was. Was it Ray Burke or Dick Spring or David Andrews? But whoever it was, she says he or their officials kind of passed her around the department saying, oh, she's related to Sir Charles Trevelyan. She said it was like being passed around like a historical Artifact, but you're absolutely right. She admits it, Claire. She was embarrassed. She didn't know her own family history.
10: What's her own take on her infamous ancestor?
9: it's more or less the same take that most historians come to that he was part and parcel of the mismanagement of the famine he was in charge of famine relief and as we know there was very little famine relief the only point that she would make is there is at least one other historian who makes the point it isn't the consensus that that he was part of a government which had elected politicians. He was a senior civil servant at the time. We're talking the 1840s here, of course, when Britain was ruling Ireland. So he wasn't an elected politician. There was a prime minister at the time. So he shouldn't carry the can mainly because he was really, dare I use that phrase, carrying out orders. Yeah,
10: he went beyond that though, didn't he, Mark? He went beyond carrying out orders when he said, that what was happening in Ireland with the famine was divine punishment for a one-crop economy.
9: Yes, and um, this is disputed by some historians. He he also came out with, it is alleged, some very racist language talking about the Catholic culture and, you know, the two large families and, and this may be God's way of teaching them a lesson. The other point that Laura Trevelyan makes whenever we decide whether or not there's a fair comparison with the paying of money to the Caribbean that the Trevelyan family have gone through is that he was acting here in a governmental capacity in terms of his involvement and his family involvement in the slave trade, that was very much personal and that's why the family is paying out. Though interestingly, Laura Trevelyan made it very, very clear to me, they are open at least to discuss money if the Irish government, and I don't think they are, are interested in money.
10: Mm-hmm. And how does she feel about the requests that have been made or the fact that it has been pointed out after that payment was made to Grenada that they need to look at the Irish situation as well? What does she say about it?
9: Well, Lord Trevelyan, in terms of full disclosure, as a friend, Claire, a former colleague. I was actually surprised she even decided to talk to me about this, to do the interview. Uh, I'd be surprised if she does many more. I don't know if you'll ever... Here on your program or see her on the late, late, yes, she was being asked questions on Twitter about Ireland, but this dates back to February. And it wasn't a Twitter storm as you and I would know. She took these questions on last week and answered them head on. I think it tells you that in terms of the bigger picture, her concentration is on the Caribbean, but she has reconciled herself that for the rest of her life, she is going to face these questions and she's decided to engage on them.
10: Mm -hmm. And she's left the BBC now, hasn't she? And she's fully involved in, in reparations.
9: She is fully involved in reparations, but you know what, and I did suggest this to her off-air, and maybe RTE might think about this as well as the BBC, wouldn't it make a great programme if she came back to Belfast, if she came back to Dublin? Because the thing that has changed, I think, you might know better than me, I think the name Trevelyan has even more name recognition now because more and more people know the song The Fields of and Rye. You hear it at the Aviva Stadium, you hear it all over the place, sometimes outside pubs and clubs on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. It'd be very interesting to see what the reaction would be if she ever came back, though she's living at the moment in New York.
0: Mark Simpson from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ryan Tubridy show, B. O'Grady was talking about a fascinating life in nursing, and at one point, caring for one of the most famous patients in the world.
11: Welcome, B.
12: Thank you. Nice Ryan. to meet you, and you too.
11: Uh, is that Beatrice or well, B, or it's is it your typical
12: b- Irish Bridget? You're <laughs> Bridget. <laughs> it's Bridget, yeah. But you yeah. got bead. I got B. Yeah. It's I a lovely. I think B is,
11: a b is a very sweet. Ah, uh,
12: yeah. I I, yeah. Look, I, it stuck to me all my life, Ryan. So I can't change it now. Hold so, on to yeah. it. You,
11: you, come from a, a bunch of uh, siblings, don't you? I do.
12: So I'm the oldest. So they, I seemingly, I think it came from when they couldn't pronounce Bridget, so it stuck with B. So I think that's what I was told anyway.
11: <laughs> let's let's hear a bit about you. You're from what part of the country, B?
12: Ah, uh, Ryan, I'm from. Kenny Ballyhale yeah. mm-hmm, um right. yeah hurling country hurling yeah. stronghold there, strong yeah strong hurling yeah Henry and TJ both my neighbors so yeah so that's yeah. the
11: that's the 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 ge- geography of it that's the geography what did yeah. you want to be when you grew up when you were little
12: uh, always a nurse always always, always yeah Always like for some an, an yeah. old school
11: vocation. You felt yeah, the calling.
12: Yeah, absolutely. Just didn't see whatever else you know was for me, but only nursing. So, yeah.
11: so what? You went to school and you navigated your way through that. Through that. I mean, I know there was a, there was a sidebar of, of talk of secretarial work that disappeared and straight to nursing. Oh God, yeah.
12: I think my mum wanted me to do. She wanted me to go to. Uh, I think it was Leinster Secretarial <laughs> School. She had enrolled me and she thought, oh yeah, that's the right. Thing. I needed to be a secretary. Yeah. But I had a different idea. I wanted to be a nurse. So I just, um, I literally got the boat to London and. That Yeah, Yeah, and at that time you couldn't get into nursing in Ireland. Nursing was very hard. You had to know somebody. So you had to maybe know a matron or something. You had to have pull. It was probably a little bit of corruption, probably, (laughs) if I can say that on air. But, you know, you did have to know somebody to get in and... It wasn't like through the CAO or anything as it is yeah. now, but so it was tricky um, too. So it was to, tricky, to, to yeah, it was out. tricky. But yeah. in the UK, in the you UK know. absolutely open door for Irish nurses. Yeah. Amazing, they, they were really amazing. Actually. And from my
11: understanding of it, Irish nurses have always had a very good reputation, huge, especially abroad, especially People, abroad. You know, yeah. wherever, maybe we underestimate uh, our, our compatriots here, but certainly abroad uh, they yeah, were. No,
12: definitely abroad. I think you know because I I think when Irish nurses got to go abroad, they really wanted to nurse, mm. and and that was the problem. So you got. Um, the best of the best I think if I can say that as well No, they were good because I think um, the training in England was totally different it was very um, broad spectrum whereas in Ireland it was a little bit more refined I think you know there was a lot there was a hierarchy there but in Ireland you know England was very much um, the doctors were your best friends but when I came back to Ireland you know there was kind of a, a Yes. distance, and I almost have heard that
11: paternalistic thing. Absolutely, uh, the, the, uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know, know where yeah. you're coming from. Yeah. <laughs> okay, slightly, but uh, but as a nurse, then, and what what what, what uh, year are we talking about, or what decade? Oh, in
12: the eighties, Ryan. So yeah, yeah in the eighties. So I think I'm kind of thirty plus years qualified now. Yeah. So you know, in the eighties, so it was different. You know, it, it was lovely. You know, it was a good place to be, London, and there was a lot of Irish
0: in London at that time. And Ryan asked B how she came to nursing Lorenzo.
11: I suppose we we kind of need to go to the US then because you 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 saw that there was um an agency got in touch and they were they were looking for a particular type of nurse, is that right? Yeah,
12: so, uh, you know, in in London, in your spare time, you do a bit of agency work. So there was this agency I had signed up with and you do extra money. It was for extra, you know, uh, we were paid okay, but, you know, you weren't paid great, so you always needed extra money. So they got in touch with me, and they wanted me to go out to America and I thought, oh God, I don't know, you know, because it was going to mean leaving everything. And I said, right, okay, I'll think about it, I'll think about it. But then, The client that they were looking for was a child, um, Lorenzo O'Doni. And Michaela got in touch with me and she would have rang me about 20,000 times and she said, I want you, I need you, I want you, I need you. Michaela,
11: the mother of the the, Lorenzo. Yeah, it
12: was Lorenzo's mother. And so eventually I did, I I caved in and went, you know, so that's where it all started. But I didn't realise... Who Lorenzo was? Well,
11: before we, we yeah. find that information yeah. out, let's find out a little bit about what was wrong with him and why. Yeah. What what was and uh, why his mother was so keen for you to come so over. So
12: he had a very rare condition, you know, which is predominantly in boys. Actually, uh, young boys. Actually, it's usually it's called adrenal leukodystrophy. So he. Uh, presented, they were, I suppose his dad was, um, and his mum, they, they were living in Africa at the time and he had, you know, he displayed kind of symptoms of deafness and, you know, he was incoherent and stuff. So they got him tested and they found that he had adrenal leukodystrophy. It's a genetic disorder that's kind of passed. The mother is normally the carrier mm-hmm. and he, he can get progressively worse, but they weren't having it. They, you know looked at every form of research that could you could ever imagine they were amazing really you know what they've done and what they've done to this day for you know for other kids with it but he, they didn't get the cure as such called Lorenzo's oil in time for him, you know. Um, and I suppose m- maybe it has helped other children up to now. It's still not um, it's not on the list yeah. of meds or whatever now, but it is, you know, an oil that kind of, it's the long chain fatty acids that's in your brain. So you're trying to break the, the long chain of them that causes the adrenal leukodystrophy. So
11: when Michaela was calling her, Countless times. Countless times, what, yeah. what got you over the line to, to, to make the trip?
12: Uh, just, just, she was, desperation actually probably got me over the line. She was so desperate. She couldn't hold on to nurses because... It was very intensive care and It was very much, you were literally hands on, keeping them alive 24 hours a day.
11: And the year was?
12: The year was in, um, oh gosh, in the 80s, in the late 80s. Late actually. 80s. Yeah, and you, you,
11: you got over to what part of America was? Washington. To Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. Yeah,
12: just, a, yeah, uh, Virginia, just outside Washington. And you, I suppose that time you were coming into a Catholic very predominantly Catholic, she was Catholic, very predominantly Catholic kind of ethos out there too. They believed so much in the prayer and the oils and, you know, yeah. everything would get them through. But she, she was amazing. She was so amazing. when you,
11: you got there, uh, he was, uh, Lorenzo was what age roughly?
12: Lorenzo was about 17 when I got there.
11: Okay. Yeah. And he, what, Can you describe how he was when you started there? So
12: he was basically, um, when we got, uh, Lorenzo, you know, was paralysed probably from the neck down. So he had very, very little movement. He had no bodily functions, everything. He was peg fed. He was, um, he had to be suctioned. You know, there was there wasn't much really that he could do for himself so most of the time to communicate he would have communicated through his eyes or his fingers and the flickering of his eyes you know so it was nearly not quite locked in syndrome but like mm. he was very much but he was there he was a whole body a whole being a young There was a whole oh my god he was amazing inside actually. you knew that, yeah, that, that oh, oh yeah amazing yeah. Yeah. yeah he was you know at 17 and you imagine puberty and I suppose I was a youngish nurse at the time you know I was in my early 20s so I probably wasn't the ideal one to be there, you know. If you had to change a pad or anything like that, you could actually see him going red, or you know, he yeah. was. Emba- you know, he yeah. was so you really knew he was there, he was inside, but he was gorgeous and he was so appreciative through his eye movements. But it was intense, right? You couldn't leave his bedside because it was constant. You know, he might have to be suctioned for a second. He might, you know, it very much hands on, and. A lot of nurses didn't stay. She she did have trouble keeping nurses. Because of know.
11: the demands, the, the, the demand, intensity yeah, the, and, yeah. and maybe the emotional she exhaustion. Never le- she
12: never left the room. She never left the house. She never left. Michaela. Michaela, yeah. She, she really didn't. She was an amazing mother. I suppose she blamed herself a lot too because she was the carrier yeah. maybe of the gene. And she just fought every ounce of her being.
11: What was uh, Lorenzo's life expectancy with that disease? Normally
12: with adrenal leukodystrophy, you know, at that time, if, you know, because they didn't have the oil, for a normal child would only be a couple of years you know so he he outlived yeah he, he lived till he was 30 years of age
5: um
11: you mentioned Lorenzo's oil, which immediately makes me yeah. think of the film of the same title. Yeah. So, is this yeah. is this the same?
12: This is the same film.
11: Yeah, okay. that was the
12: film that was made. So, Nick Nolte and Susan Sarandon, you know, were the key people in that film. Playing so the mother and father. Playing the mother and father. But this this is based that was based on um, on, this on this
0: family. And B spent an intense six months with Lorenzo.
11: How yeah. long did you last for survive? Yeah, probably
0: six months.
13: <laughs> yeah. was it wasn't six it, yeah,
12: months. It was, yeah, but it was, but it was intensive, but it was good. No, she was lovely. She was full on. You know, I mean, she was amazing. I mean, Paul came to collect me one night and um, she said she called him in. She said, we've had nothing to eat today. She said, you've got to make a uh, make an Irish stew on the barbecue. Like, she, you know, she was very much, there was no cooking in the house. There was no nothing. I think he's traumatised to this day. Like, you know, he can't even boil an egg, but he had to make an Irish stew on a barbecue. I can so, only imagine how yeah, he managed that yeah, feeling. No, no, it wasn't good, Ryan. It wasn't no, no. good, yeah.
11: But the food yeah. in the house business was, what was that? No,
12: that was the smells. She didn't want him having any smells in the house, so they didn't eat in the house. You know, it was, it was just... Everything was about him. She was very much preoccupied with just keeping him alive. You know, she was a, she was an amazing mother, but the stress of it, you know, in the end, she died with breast cancer in the end, you know. And I, I well, I'm, I can't really say for sure, but I'm sure it didn't, you know, help, you know, the way she was living Yeah. to and the intensification of. Her love for him, really, you know.
11: And she was a young woman then when she died, was she? She was
12: only in her early 60s when she died, Um, And did
11: did Lorenzo outlive her?
12: Lorenzo, that's the sad part. Isn't that extraordinary? After all that, given
11: that his low life expectancy. Yeah, yeah. uh, Yeah. the, The six months you were there would have been... To put it in context, quite a long time.
12: Long time. Yeah.
11: Given the, yeah. the the nature of the job you're yeah. describing, I yeah. mean, I don't think yeah. we're really getting no. a, a sense of just how difficult this no, was. But it was. So yeah. six months is probably like dog years. Like you're is, is that right? Yes. I mean, I don't mean to, uh, to be glib about what. No, happened, it would be but...
12: like probably sixty years, maybe. You know, oh, right, a week okay, was like more. yeah, it was. It was. It was very intense. You know, and it was it was pressure too. There was a lot of pressure on on the family themselves as well.
0: Leo Grady from the Ryan Tuberty show. And on Morning Ireland, an unsettling story about AI, artificial intelligence. And Geoffrey Hinton, the so-called godfather of AI, and his concerns about this brave new world.
7: The development of artificial intelligence is regarded by people in the world of technology as perhaps the most important development in computing for several decades. But Geoffrey Hinton, the senior developer of Google's artificial intelligence system, a man often described as the godfather of AI, says he fears that products like chat GBT could become more intelligent than humans. He's resigned from Google, warning of the dangers if these projects fall into the wrong hands. And he says part of him regrets his life's work.
14: The issue is now that we've discovered it works better than we expected a few years ago, what do we do to mitigate the long-term risks of things more intelligent than us taking yeah. control? Being able to produce lots of, fa- lots of text automatically so you can get lots of very effective spam bots... Um, It'll allow authoritarian leaders to manipulate their electorates, things like Mm. that. There's another particular thing I want to talk about, which is the existential risk of what happens when these things get more intelligent than us. The kind of intelligence we're developing is very different from the intelligence we have. Mm. We're biological systems, and these are digital systems. With digital systems, you have many copies of the same set of weights, the same model of the world. And all these copies can learn separately but share their knowledge instantly. So it's as if you had 10,000 people and whenever one person learned something, everybody automatically knew it. And that's how these chaps can know so much more than any one person.
7: Well, Elaine Burke, technology journalist and presenter of the For Tech's Sake podcast, joins us now on the line. Elaine, who is Jeffrey Hinton and what has he said about why he's quitting his job?
15: Yeah, so he, um, I mean, he is widely referred to as a godfather of AI, and um, uh, he worked with Ilya Sutskever and another student of his to develop an early neural network, and that's how he ended up at Google. They acquired the company um, that he kind of spun out around that, um, and he was an early believer in the potential of these neural networks when there were some skeptics uh, around him about it, and that, I suppose that belief in the potential that we can get from neural networks, which are a technology that underpins this development of AI. Um, that, that's how he got to where he is today. Um, he also uh, refused Pentagon funding on that product project because he is uh, very wary of the use of these kind of technologies in kind of military um, situations. So I, I can kind of see all of those motivations and those uh, attitudes in his decision uh, to make these statements. And uh, he's retiring at the age of 75. He's also said, it's time to retire. I'm 75. Um, but I think he's kind of perhaps having a bit of an Oppenheimer moment. Uh, doesn't want to live to regret, regret uh, the technology that he has helped bring into being in the world and uh, doesn't want to see it used in those ways that he was obviously for a long time very opposed mm. to things that would really oppress people and harm people.
7: And this is it. I mean, he has said that his problem isn't specifically with Google. He's leaving... Because- because he wants to be free to talk out, or to speak out rather, because he has these con- wider concerns.
15: Yeah, and I suppose it's um, for him, I'm trying to speculate on his attitudes here, but um, possibly that he, he's he's making this big, significant move in his life. He is seeing as a hugely influential voice in terms of this technology. And I suppose he just wants to make sure that that message gets out there and this is a very effective way of doing that. And really what he's saying is he really wants... The, um, the people scaling this technology to kind of think, maybe we shouldn't be scaling it until we really understand it and know how to control it. Um, he has said things that he believes that the general artificial intelligence idea, I mean, that could be a very, very, very long time away. He has said maybe less than 50 plus years. So still, uh, like, probably he'll be long gone by the time we do get there himself. But um, but there's definitely some people who think we'll never get to that stage. Um, and th- yet almost everywhere
7: you look at the moment, there seem to be people voicing concerns that maybe this is moving too quickly and maybe we're not entirely sure what we're getting into here.
15: I think that, that those are very, very real concerns. And the things that he said there that there are the real and immediate threat are the ability uh, for these generative AI technologies to spin out misinformation campaigns very, very easily, very sophisticated campaigns with, with great ease and, and great speed as well. Um, and that that can be misused uh, a lot quicker than this speculative form of, of general AI can, can turn on us by itself. Um, and even his ideas of... Um, how this AI might be used he still is thinking of a human in the loop and a human actor using it badly like he's not talking about a sentient AI taking over or anything like that he is just still talking about uh, our human propensity for for bad uh, when we have tools tools can do good things and can do bad things um, and, and that has even been shown like uh, researchers have unleashed AIs into survival games and they'll make uh, wild decisions like uh, they'll just reproduce and devour their young <laughs> because that's the best way for survival in this particular game There is a cheery a toss player. This morning.
0: (laughs) Elaine Burke talking to Rachel English in the morning. And on Today with Claire Byrne, the question was Is it socially acceptable to be bad at maths?
10: Now, though, in a recent speech, the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said, It should not be socially acceptable to joke about being bad at maths. He said, The current approach puts students at a disadvantage because they're not equipped with skills that will be useful to them in the labour market but lots of us do exactly that, don't we? We might be good at totting things up in our heads or we might not, but we'll happily joke about being bad at hard sums. So, is Rishi Sunak right? For the expert view on all of this, I'm joined now in the studio by maths teacher and author, Brendan Gilday. Good morning to you, Brendan. Hi, You're very welcome. Thank you. So, that question, has it become socially acceptable to be bad at maths or to joke about being bad at maths?
16: Do you think it has? I think it has, yeah. I think so. I think I'm um, probably... Nowadays, in particular, maybe on the role model side, if you're, say, a young person growing up nowadays, you kind of look and you almost think, who needs a brain? You know, nobody sees it. So it's image. And we, in the West, we like discussion. We almost, you can see it sometimes with the the International Panel, Panel for Climate Change, where we have um, people want to debate the issue. You know, is global warming real or is it as bad? as they say it is, and possibly the IPC, because it's political, they don't tell the truth, it's not great. We we don't dumb the science down, but we just pull it back a bit. So I think society, particularly in the West, Mm -hmm. we have that problem. So do you think that some
10: of those discussions and conversations emanate from the fact that we don't deal well with statistics? Is that what you're saying?
16: We don't deal well with the numbers or maybe even part of the education experience might be that you, you don't handle numbers well. I mean, if you say go to the preschool place and you're trying to get the idea of number. That's where, if you like, the problems begin or or end maybe. If you can't handle number, then you can't do number operations. Mm-hmm. Then fractions become an obstacle and then when you're hit with algebra, your doom is assured. Um, so if you don't handle it and and... Possibly, and this is maybe slightly on the controversial side, but Matt's teaching nowadays, maybe they're not taught as well. Also, too, in the West, we don't we don't value drill and practice. Like if you look at, say,
10: that sounds um, painful now,
16: the, um, the PISA testing worldwide, the countries that do the best are routinely, let's say, Singapore, Japan, Korea. And then let's say what I call hard working countries like Poland and Estonia, believe it or not, finished third in the last one, and they have that work ethic. But the rest of us, um, say the Germans, the Brits, the Irish, we're a bit more, oh yeah, we don't do that. So we don't teach them the drill and practice. You're
10: you're bringing to mind now conversations I would have had over the last year with Ukrainian parents, some of whom can't believe how holistic the school experience is here because they're used to that, you know, rote, serious learning. That's not appealing to some people. You're saying, well, we need to get past that, get over it and get back to it.
16: Yeah, well, we've sort of, it's educationally, if you like, fashionable to be nice to everybody. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm for that. I remember back in the day when people, if you coloured the sky green and the grass blue, you were in trouble. And that wasn't right. But nowadays, we're at the stage where, like in maths, I suppose, the one I use all the time is two times nine. What's two times nine? And if you tell me 11 that's okay. I was taught by the nuns. You could be beaten <laughs> till you learned it yeah, back you're in the not, day. You're Whereas, not asking uh, for
10: a return to those days, no, are no, you?
16: No, no, I am not. No, absolutely <laughs> not. No, no, for sure. But what I meant was two times nine is eleven is okay, and you get what's called a partial credit. So you've passed your maths exam. Mm-hmm. Um, if you say two times nine is thirty, well, that's a bit big, but we'll give you high partial credit. So you're quite good. Really? Now, obviously, two times nine is still 18 and that's yeah. full marks but if you said 20 you'd probably get the mark as well so we've bent it a bit we tried to negotiate with when the maths When did
7: that happen?
14: Well, I didn't know that was in going Ireland on in Brendan. the last
16: maybe <laughs> since the new maths course came in probably like nowadays they're not a shake away from being asked what's your favourite number and if you write one down well that gets you marks <laughs> and you could har- pass um, hardly um, lacks, well, yeah. It's hardly that lax Well it's not quite but there is that side of it where when you introduce the jargon like you know high partial credit or partial credit or even we'd say with the new junior cycle now, again, I, I'm back in the day when people got a percentage. So it was very demoralising if you got 17% in a maths exam. But then we changed it to grades and that was a bit softer. Lately, grade not assigned is what's going to happen in the junior cert, in the junior cycle, if you don't pass the subject. And if you read that, grade not assigned, that almost absolves you. It, it almost means that, oh, somebody lost your grade or mm-hmm. maybe it's in the post still. Mm-hmm. Um, but somehow, um, we, and we're, we soften it. Now, I'm not for the bad old days either, but there is a, a side in this where we don't drill, we don't repeat, and that's a big problem. Because
10: with maths, you're either right or wrong. Well, know.
16: now, that's it. And that's why I'd say the education trendies, if you like, don't like that. And we don't like to have that... And it's, you know, you get people going the two ways here on a, on a mental health issue, let's say, if you keep telling them they're wrong, that can affect people. Fair enough. But on the other side, if you always get it right, that's no practice for life and your well-being um, You you don't have the resilience maybe when someone says, no, no, three, two times nine isn't 11, it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And let's look at it and see why it's wrong. Um, And and that helps you, I think, in your life. It builds up your resilience. so, So
10: this is what's led us to the point now where people are not embarrassed to say, I am bad at
16: maths. No, absolutely. As a matter of fact, it's almost like a celebration. I think it's almost the reverse um, in the sense that, and especially younger people in particular, ah, they can just shrug it off. And it's okay. It is okay. There is mm-hmm. that side of saying, sure, if I have 10 million followers on Twitter, well, am I sure, I don't need to, the square on the hypotenuse or anything else.
0: Kevin Gilday from Today with Claire Barn. And on the live line, Joe was talking about the Russian embassy in Dublin.
6: 433 days. ...since uh, Russia invaded Ukraine and for almost every single one of those days there have been a group of stalwarts... Um, ...not political parties as far as I could see when I drive past but every day at the Russian embassy at Orwell Road in Ratgar... ...almost without fail of those 433 days there has been a presence of protesters outside. Eileen Dial, Eileen good afternoon...
17: Good afternoon Joe
6: and you 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 i know you you haven't been there in a few weeks, but you were a daily protester
17: oh no i didn 't go that often, but I well, did good. go last year myself, and my sister, and I actually feel guilty okay. that I stopped going
6: why why do anyway, you feel guilty
17: I feel guilty because I wanted to protest
6: and who I, would you know, who would be in the group protesting is it is it, a, it
17: was is, a oh my God, I met so many different people and there were some amazing people there um I can't remember their names now because it's it's last year i was I've been away for three months, so i okay. haven't i can't remember the names of the people we met, but we met some incredibly um good people who are there every day, every now, day.
6: The fog of war does not allow us to compute accurately by any uh, estimate how many people have killed have been killed in in the invasion It ranges from forty thousand to over a hundred thousand depending on whether you believe the Norwegian uh, chief of defence, whether you believe the... U- it's very, very hard. To, but we all know it is, it is catastrophic. Now, the issue that at Charlie yeah. Flanagan, the Fine Gael TD over the weekend, said it's time for Yuri Filatov, the Irish, uh, the Russian ambassador to Russian Ireland, ambassador. to be expelled from Ireland and his yeah. crew.
17: Yeah. What I do you think? I would totally agree. Yeah, I wh- would agree. Why? Yeah. I would be happy.
6: Well, what difference, would, would, it, what difference would it make if he was expelled?
17: What difference would it make if yeah,
6: he was If he was expelled.
17: I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure the Ukrainian people would be happy. Um, and it, it just lets him know that we're not happy with what he does. I mean, he just does what he wants without anybody protesting. Well, we are protesting, but he doesn't see that. So maybe he... He, he'd get, he'd take notice when you know if we expel his expel ambassadors, okay. and maybe other countries should do the same.
6: Yeah, but Charlie Flanagan, uh, who was a senior Fine Gael TD, is no longer a minister, but his call has been met with a deafening silence by everyone else. It seems in the Dál. Anyway, Ju- Julian Vignoles, Julian, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. Julian is uh, formerly of this parish, but is now a writer. To uh, written a book on Rory Gadhar, a first novel that's just been published, and we we'll talk about a book that you've written with your fellow protesters. How often do you go up to the gates of the Russian embassy, Julian?
13: Well, I'm there most most weeks, uh, most days, uh, when I'm in, not, in, not not down the country or something. Uh, I've been there oh, wait, many is a day. Uh, there's a hardcore group of us, maybe there's 30, 40, uh, and then some new people come and go. So you know, we, we just do a couple of hours a day.
6: And who are? Well, to we'll begin with, why, Julian? Why do you do it? Why do you think it well, makes I mean, a difference?
13: It, was, it started out, I mean, everyone was so disgusted and outraged by the invasion that, I mean, here's the representative of this regime. Uh, in or, and they're on Orwell Road, so Let's let's go and show them what we feel. And we call on them shame on you when the so-called diplomatic cars go in and out. And uh, so that's, and then you know you you keep doing it because it's it's a gesture. It's all you can do. Hmm. Um, So that's that's why we're still there.
6: And how would you describe the group? Who are they? Like are they? But does a uh, do political parties turn up? No,
13: um, no political parties don't turn up. Uh, The people before profit came uh, one day. I think Uh, the Labour Party were there one day. That's all. They haven't been there since. This group is very mixed. It's, I mean, they're not aligned. Most of them.
4: Mm-hmm.
13: There are people of moderate views generally, uh, but just uh, disgusted and outraged by, by by the invasion, and and want to show how they feel.
0: Julian and Eileen on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Claire Byrne, are TikTok recipes delicious? The answer is no. And chef Holly Dalton wasn't having any of it.
10: If you are on TikTok or Instagram, you might see lovely images of food and restaurants, recipes that inspire you to get the pots and pans out, to buy and try new ingredients, perhaps marinade, based roast and toast. But there are other TikTok recipes that really have no place in your kitchen because they are disgusting there's no other word for it and chef holly dalton has been taking a look at
3: some of the worst offenders holly you're very welcome what awful things have you seen i think what comes to mind like immediately and like like i understand okay it's tiktok it's an algorithm you know you want to be seen to be what works better is if you watch it if you watch the full thing so they're trying to get people's attention they're trying to engage people like straight away and i'm an idiot okay i'm the one getting engaged i'm the one looking at this it's my problem i'm the problem one of the worst ones that comes to mind straight away is there's this trend and it's kind of called the everybody's so creative trend and it's always done as a duet. It's like somebody cooking something and then there's somebody else alongside it being like, everybody's so creative. See how we weren't supposed to do that? And we did it anyway. Just kind of like, what? And it's like, I saw one and it was a woman making a pasta bake and she had this big, big aluminium like disposable tray and she didn't take the labels off. Mm -hmm. So she poured the pasta in when the labels are on, in, like the labels are visibly breaking up in the dish. So you're going to have glue and paper in there. And it's just like, do you... Is this a joke? Are we supposed to be laughing? Is this like, uh, the whole point of the video was like her take on it. was like, oh, you don't have to wash up afterwards. Which is like, okay, grand, whatever. That's fine. Very environmentally unfriendly as well. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. um, what about the Doritos in the, in the bag? Doritos just seem to like pop up everywhere in TikTok recipes, whether it be like, oh, break up Doritos, coat a chicken with it. I'm like, okay, that's kind of, that's fine. You know, I understand it. I get it. But like, and this went viral. Like, people made this, which is just messed up. You get a bag of Doritos, you open the bag of Doritos. You know, that's that sounds fairly okay so far. And then you get, like, you know, raw beef mince and cheese and, like, salsa. You put it in the bag. Yeah. Okay, raw. Yeah. It's in the bag. You've got a pot of boiling water and you're going to boil it all in the bag. I don't know a single food that has ever been improved by boiling it in a bag. Ah, uh, Now we're into the, the realm of disgusting, right? <laughs> like it's, and, and, you know, people are proud of this. And yes. you open the bag, you put it on the plate. It's this grey. It really is like the true. If you Googled grey, I'm pretty sure this is what would come up. It is the definition of a grey food. And I, you know, I'm lazy. OK, we're all looking for a life hack. We're all looking for tips and tricks with food. I am not judgmental generally with food. But it's just like, people are making this. Yeah, no, it's
10: not. It's not good. It's not good. And when it comes to Naki, then, there was a, a quick uh, <laughs> gnocchi recipe <laughs> in inverted commas using instant noodles. Yeah,
3: OK, I'm a big instant noodle gal. OK, I'm an instant noodle stan. And I get it because the thing about instant noodles is they have this like alkaline, alkaline kind of alkalinity like quality to them, which makes them very springy. It's not like regular noodles. So I saw this thing where you boil noodles and you strain them and then you crack an egg into it and you blitz it and it makes this kind of like dough for lack of a better, of a better word mm-hmm. and you roll this out and you make gnocchi but I'm like okay there's so many levels of why here it's like if you're going to go to the effort of rolling out gnocchi you know you might even shape it with a fork you might even put a bit of effort into it why are you using instant noodles? Like the only thing you're substituting there is flour and like you know, uh, you know boiled mashed potato whatever Like, these aren't expensive things. Just use the mashed potato, right? Just use the mash. You didn't try that one, did you, with the noodles? I I haven't tried that one um, because it's kind of like, now, look, okay, my instant reaction when I first saw it was like, oh, that's cool. You know, that's the problem. like, oh, look at that. I know, because it's interesting to to watch, isn't it? It is interesting. And there's another one that's, like, by way worse. It's the kind of cousin of the instant noodle ones. And I don't even know. I don't even know. Like, none of this makes sense. Okay, so you get pasta, okay? Like, you know, regular, like, dry pasta. And you... Blitz that until it's like a fine powder, which first of all, no domestic blender is going to be able to do anyway. Mm. Uncooked. Uncooked. Uncooked, yeah. And you use that as like a pasta flour to make fresh pasta, which is just like what the only thing you're
10: substituting there is regular flour yeah that which... makes no sense but I suppose I mean and you're well aware of this because what you said at the beginning it's about what you see the mm. visual of yeah. blending the pasta and then the noise which is important as well on, on TikTok or Instagram
3: as well isn't it yeah noise is huge and especially when it comes to recipe I've noticed recipes I've noticed like a huge emphasis on crunch on like texture that is like massive
0: Lee Dalton from Today with Claire Byrne And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.